Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by Headspring, custom executive development specialists as part of Headspring's commitment to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I'm your host, Bevan Rees. My guest today is Jose Hernandez, author of Broken Business, an authoritative guide to reforming good companies gone bad. Jose, welcome into the studio. Thank you. Thank you for so, inviting me. Jose, you have your roots in forensic accounting. So, you know, really finding where things have gone wrong and <laughs> who've done the bad deeds, etc., and, and tracing that back. But your consultancy and your work nowadays is far more in helping organizations who've undergone corporate scandal or difficult governance issues and helping them rehabilitate and, and find their way back to constructive business. Yeah, you know, I um, I was a partner, formerly a partner with PwC and the more in the forensics, corporate compliance front. And uh, I found myself about 10 years ago partnering with the former director of the FBI, Louis Free, to help boards of very large organizations that face sort of a once-in-a-lifetime crisis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, usually they're involved in some type of investigation. It's in the public domain. It involves misconduct, potentially all the way to the top of an organization. And then you come in and they say, well, you know, we got lots of lawyers, lots of accountants, a lot of consultants here, and we don't know what to do next. Mm -hmm. And um, and we help sort of strategize. And uh, obviously you need to get to the facts. You can't solve a problem. You can't go to the doctor and say, I kind of feel bad but can you help me? And, you know, he wants more information. So we help gather facts. We help frame potential outcomes and potential answers on how to best address this. But the most important and, and beautiful part of what I do is help them rehabilitate so that what's happened in the past never happens again. Mm. And a lot of it is it boils down to leadership and culture, especially in an organization that's been around for 100 years. These are special institutions, but helping them reform and helping them sort of grow stronger. That's a fantastic part of my job. But you bring the forensic skill set, you bring, you know, your human understanding of business. You know, I've had the great pleasure of travel around the world and you understand cultures. And obviously I was born in El Salvador, so I understand war-torn, I understand corruption, I've lived it. Mm -hmm. So I come at it in a very human fashion. And understanding that organizations, it's really more about humans than it is about technology. You know, and, and the mistakes are human, so we help them deal with the mistakes and hopefully um, get them a quick prompt settlement with regulators and develop something stronger for the future. Yeah, so what I really love about that is there's this focus on not just the numbers and not just what's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. um, there's real honing in on what's more than an individual, sometimes an individual, I'm guessing, and sometimes a group of people having made a significant mistake, something potentially very legal, very big mistake that the organization is now having to try to recalibrate from and, and turn back mm -hmm. from. There's obviously something going on here that is a lot more than just the individual or just at that basic level. I mean, to quote something from your book, which is which I think really sets the tone for this, is he is what we like to call a bad apple, speaking about the individual who's committed the, the ostensible crime. And when things go wrong in a company, senior leaders like to convince themselves and others that the issues boil down to the conduct of a few bad apples or rogue employees. We distance ourselves from them, in inverted commas, and convince ourselves that they are different and not like you and me. But that kind of thinking limits our understanding of the situation, and it leads to inadequate remedies 
when issues of misconduct are brought to light. What, what do you mean there, Jose, when you talk about this kind of thinking limits our understanding of the situation? Well, first, um, and we're talking about big corporations with something very significant under criminal investigation. Mm. It is not like you breached the rule one day and you found out the next, and mm. it's all happened in a very short period of time. In fact, if you get caught in any organization stealing, lying, or doing something inappropriate with your secretary or with your boss, you'd be fired pretty quickly. Mm. So over a period of time, what we found is that there was a slippery slope where a number of actions by certain individuals were always pushing the boundaries and in some ways forgiven or understood because they were the larger-than-life creatures, mm. the rainmakers, the untouchables. And these people started to dominate an organization. But what happens over time is that the line for the entire organization starts to shift. And clearly, for example, in a corrupt payment, um, you say, well, I need to make a payment because that's the only way we're going to do business in China or in Pakistan or in Nigeria. Well, you start rationalizing that uh, everyone else is doing it. Or you start saying, well, I'm not doing it, but a third party is doing it for me. And then you start distancing yourself. But what's what's amazing is that uh, in all the cases that I've worked on, surely you can always pinpoint one or two senior individuals that at least drove an institution to to bend the rules. But what's remarkable is that to make a payment to go out, you need a lot of, you need invoices, you need authorizations, you need treasury, you need accounting, you need contracts. So a lot of people are involved. So a lot of people see the warning signs. So that also suggests to you that the warning signs at some point were made known to senior ups in an organization. And somehow either they were rationalized away or not dealt with, well, in all instances, not dealt with appropriately. So Going back to the systemic risk of this is that, yes, they were larger-than-life creatures, and they're like you and I, but different. But we, because they're charismatic, because they're charming, because we're very smart, but because we now see the impact of what they've done, you, like anything dirty, you and I want to separate ourselves from the dirty, even though we have been part mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the team mm -hmm. that have in some way accepted this, in some way we've been willfully blind, or we just didn't stand up to the issues until it was too late. So that's sort of separation, but I think that what I'm trying to drive is that just because a person looks different or just because we think, oh, that's an outsider, it's sort of, uh, we want to separate ourselves, but it could happen to you and I. And what I say to a lot of folks is the individuals that I've seen that push the boundaries, those rainmakers, are just like you and I, but smarter mm. and more charismatic. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes their charm dangerous. And that's what, in organizations, in some ways, they corrode them from the inside mm -hmm. over a long period of time, pushing those boundaries of business until something turns into a scandal. Mm. There's a great phrase you used there, willfully blind. Talk me through a little bit what it means to be willfully blind as well, an individual and in an organizational culture, perhaps. Yeah, so for example, you look at a transaction and uh, you're paying a markup to a third party. Let's say you're operating in uh, Turkmenistan and a third party says, well, look, um, why don't you add a markup of 30% to this invoice? You can say, well, it's a party that I've already vetted. You know, it's a party that's doing business for us. The 30% and maybe because of some circumstances that may be challenging in the country... Whereas 
you and I may know that the 30% extra on the invoice is going to go to a government official. It's a bribe. Mm-hmm. So some people just say, well, I am not doing that. It's not my organization that's bribing the government official. It's some other third party. Mm. The other one is to basically get a report, an investigative report, and says, well, this person approved certain payments. But then you can say, well, did he really know what those payments were for? And then you start excusing people, fully knowing that, suspecting at least, that that person has done wrong. So willfully blind is a way of us rationalizing ourselves away from doing the courageous actions, the things that we need to do mm-hmm. in order to stand up and, and address a problem. Mm-hmm. But actually, so it's the flip side of courage, mm-hmm. as if you could put it in the most simplistic <laughs> of, of, of ways. So there's a lot of, I suppose, understandable. We can all empathize with this to a degree. Mm -hmm. Because this is, to your point in your language earlier, this is very human, right? I mean, there's a lot of personal psychology. There's also a lot of uh, sociology going on in this world. Social pressures, cultural mores. And I mean, just to kind of read into the subtext of what you're saying, am I hearing that when this, this kind of behavior goes on consistently, there's an organizational culture that develops that supports the ongoing willful blindness and leads to ongoing willful blindness within a, within an organization. Yeah, it supports it or, or maybe it just tolerates it. Tolerate. And then uh, and the more you tolerate, the more you're condoning the conduct, the more you're accepting it, and the more everyone around you says, well, I guess that is normal mm-hmm. in this setting. Mm. I guess that's just the way things are done. Mm-hmm. So you socialize it. Uh, and of course, great experiments in the 60s and 70s, you know, Stanford Prison Experiment, how you know seemingly well-intended individuals with a set of circumstances under the right pressure can do some terrible things. Mm. So again, and once you see certain conduct, you know, we all want to belong, especially in an organizational context. Mm. One of the fascinating things that I found over my 20 years specializing in this space is people tend to think of corporate misconduct, cases of corruption, and, and I'm talking about history, you know, long history of organizations with great brands as bad apples or bad persons, bad companies, that, of course, bad persons and bad companies end up in a crisis. My experience is, and this is why I wrote the book, it's exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. Not one of the corporations that I've actually worked on, maybe I've had too much luck, have been bad corporations. They've been good, solid businesses. It doesn't matter what the industry's been. And the people that I've dealt with, even those that were willfully blind, even those that were committing these acts, they were good leaders with some faults, but they were Mm -hmm. good people that meant well. And somehow they cross the line. Mm. And it's an element of pressure. It's an element of incentives. It's an element of understanding, you know, the context that profits and and shortcuts sometimes are rewarded more than just doing the best uh, in the interest of a corporation. Mm. But that understanding, that psychology that it can happen to all of us, that misconduct is inevitable, but we can actually prevent a scandal. So, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's only human to fault, but it's up to us to fix those mistakes before they grow into something much bigger than what it needs to be. Yeah. So you say we could, it's up to us to prevent it turning into a scandal. Mm-hmm. Look, it seems to me that organizations and businesses are under more pressure than ever to show good governance, uh, to show social investment of a positive kind, mm-hmm. to show uh, r- respectful, sustainable approaches to environmental engagement, etc. These ESG issues are extremely prominent and increasingly so. Do you think companies are under more pressure and will therefore take better measures to prevent these kind of scandals? Or do you think that is actually adding to the pressure in the system that might lead to even elevated or increased numbers of, of scandals and poor governance and poor behavior? 
I think it could be a combination in both. And if it's more of the latter, it's more dangerous. Mm. Because um, in a business, the capital markets effectively are driving the agendas of boards and the agendas of businesses. The capital markets really care about profits and future expectations. You and I look at our pension statement and there's no happiness or ESG rating associated with each of investments. You and I measure up or down. Mm -hmm. And if it's down, people like my parents say, they stole money from me when they see their pension portfolio go down. I'm like, no, it's just, you know, the way these things work. But until we have ways of gauging and embedding this more into the way we measure companies, measure and reward things, until we institutionalize good conduct. Look, it wasn't until so long ago, remember 20 years ago, late 1990s, we said, we're going to eradicate corruption, at least in the OECD countries. We're going to make it a criminal offense and so on. This year, we still have some of the largest corruption cases around Mm. happening 20 years later in the best of organizations. And it doesn't matter where you're headquartered, whether you're in Brazil or in Scandinavia or in China, it's happening all around. So I think good intentions are a good start. However, if we do not embed this into the incentive system of leaders, into the way we govern organizations, we don't embed it into the strategy component because it's no sense, for example, saying I'm just going to try to offset my carbon footprint when I'm you know, building up huge dams. And, and, and you know, I think you need to figure out how you're going to balance these things as part of strategy rather than as an add-on perk. And you have to have the checks and balances to make sure that it's working as intended. Mm. Only by doing all this as a system do we have a chance of making it work? Mm-hmm. But otherwise, as you suggest, rightfully, we may be adding just more pressure. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, your boss and everyone's going to be measuring profits or growth or revenues or market share. And we are living in a winner-take-all environment. Mm. To the winner, go to the spoils. And everyone else basically doesn't get funding mm-hmm. or doesn't get the promotion or doesn't get the market or doesn't mm-hmm. get the contract. So it's uh, in- an interesting, it's, it's up to us to define what type of world we're going to live in. But it is challenging out there. And yes, things are becoming a little better. But is it just part of the honeymoon period with new ideas that are starting to get traction with the UN Sustainable Goals? Or is this just another fad and something else that a manager has to worry about, even though their bonus and their incentive system has nothing to do with that? So changing the system, as you say, I mean, that's a steep hill to climb. And and we could be talking about different systems there, multiple systems, the system within the organization, the the system within the industry, also the broader economics and just Mm -hmm. the globalized state that we live in. Obviously, organizations can only really, well, they have varying degrees of impact depending on where we, we mm-hmm. place that systemic view. As an organization, if you're the leader of an organization and you take on the view that we're always going to be dealing with humans, humans under pressure make mistakes. Mm-hmm. This is not about bad apples. It's about particular humans in particular circumstances mm-hmm. making poor decisions. What do you see as kind of steps that leaders can take to ensure that that doesn't happen in the organization, or at least that they can mitigate the risk of that happening in the organization on a regular basis? I think that uh, CEOs and leaders need to put themselves out there. Mm -hmm. They need to, simple things like having open letters, open door policies, going to the shop floor, going to the street, talking to customers, and promoting a speak-up environment where people can come to you with issues. And, you know, there's a certain type of leader that says, if I get a certain sense of problems, that means I have a problem because I expect my underlings to be dealing with those things. But in fact, you want problems to defy gravity. You want problems to go up. You want to know as a board of directors, as a CEO, as a leadership team, what are my issues? What are my allegations of misconduct? Where do we go wrong? Because only by understanding that can you actually know what's really going on in an organization and, and fix it. And also saying to people, look, it's excusable 
to make a mistake. If we make a mistake twice, then we have another conversation. Mm. But if you hide a mistake, then you have no room in this organization. Mm. Because then you can start creating a real problem that affects more than an individual and affects the corporation. So being more human, being more transparent, acknowledging mistakes, and following through. So mm. when a CEO or a leader personally becomes engaged, not in fact-finding, like you get an allegation of misconduct, but just says, you know, tell me about that issue. What actually happened there? Have we sent internal audit to go look at whether they cleaned up what they said they would do? You know, just just following through on the small things. Mm -hmm. Because you follow up on the small things, you have a good chance of signaling to organization that the small things matter. So, and the boss is not just about the big numbers and the quarterly review and whatnot. The boss is interested in the small things and the transgressions that suggest that the leaders may not be quite attuned, that there's something not right in the business, but yes, if we make a mistake, stand up and say, we made a mistake, and then we move on. Mm. You've got that really strong perspective on the human approach, mm -hmm. the the fact that this always originates with humans, and it takes human approach to solve it. Is that not possibly, in some organizations, part of the original problem itself? Is the absence or the lack of that kind of approach and that kind of perspective? Yeah, the, the problem we have today is that business is so unbelievably complex. Mm. And we have global businesses. I mean, some of my clients operate in 190 countries around the world. You know, you got three, four, five hundred thousand employees. So you do lose some of that humanity in terms of managing the numbers. Mm. The challenge is how do you build the structures in an organization, the technology, the information systems, the syst and the incentives so that you can be in touch with what's going on leveraging from all the levers available to you without actually knowing every single action that happens any course of the day. So it's mixing humanity with structure and technology and finding the balance that works for every business that works in a particular market. And again, creating that sort of culture of bringing things up, of not just blasting individuals, not abusing power, but it, so we, we sometimes miss the humility of running an organization with 400,000 individuals. And the moment you start losing it and you start making promises all about the market and all about growth is the moment where you're going to start making more mistakes. Mm. We all make mistakes. We mm. start making more mistakes. Mm. And certainly you can't afford the critical mistakes that just for the sake of growth and profits, you decide to do a transaction or accept a certain practice and later on it comes back to, and bites you. So, Jose, I mean... You know, forgive me if I'm overstating this or overstepping this, but my sense is that you have a very strong balance of a kind of an empathetic approach to the organization and also to the people who are involved. And people must be accountable for their actions, obviously. But from the way that you speak, you see it from that perspective of of an understanding of, you know, these things happen. And so is my understanding there that, that you believe these can be changed, uh, that these kind of actions can be prevented? And... As part of your work, you obviously go into organizations and rehabilitate them and, and actually go through that process. Where do you start? I mean, what, what is the, the first step when you... When Clearly, you I mean, I, in some ways, I have an easy job. I start when there's already a crisis. So mm -hmm. you're in the fact-finding mode or you go and investigate and you go interview individuals. If I'm in the investigative mode, because sometimes I'm called to do that... And you get to the facts, and then you clearly understand who did what and what happened, and then you just sort of bring an organization a view of what you think is the right thing mm. that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. you know, but it's their choice. So, But my job is to frame it, but and also my job is to suggest if you decide to take the easy path, which is to give top leaders a pass or give an important third party a pass, the potential consequences. The other part of my job that's relatively easy is that 
I tend to have criminal authorities or civil authorities in the United States also investigating this company. Mm -hmm. So I help them frame, look, when you present these facts on the other side of the pond, here's how the other side will interpret it because they have an open, you're being prosecuted by mm -hmm. them. So in that sense, it's easy, but it's hard in the sense that, you know, these are, you have to sometimes make a choice. I have to separate from this individual. I have to change a business practice. I have to acknowledge to my customers that we've really screwed up. And those are tough things to do, but uh, certainly not shying away from the problem and helping frame a better path to doing this is where the magic is at. So in your, in your book, Jose, you, you mentioned, you spend quite a bit of time speaking about the importance of leadership, especially the CEO, really modeling this the kind of behavior that is necessary to build into the culture in order to preempt and prevent mm -hmm. these kind of scandals as much as possible. And, and, and you suggested that a little bit earlier as well. Where does this role model need for leadership meet this kind of the bad apple charismatic manager? How do those two resolve? How do you, because many, many times the or from the perspective in your, in your book, that charismatic person, that, that rainmaker, as you say, isn't necessarily a senior, senior leader, isn't necessarily a C-level executive, for example, yet they have an inordinate amount of power. They build out this kind of power base and this power mm -hmm. process within the organization. Sometimes people don't see it coming for some time. Mm -hmm. How does that CEO wanting to be the role model, needing to be the role model, meet that process in a healthy way, in a constructive way? Um, usually in a crisis or situations where we go in, the CEO that we start with is not the CEO a few years after. There tends to be a change in the process, mm -hmm. a refreshing at the top, if you would. But at some point, it's just a matter of explaining to the CEO, these are the facts and these are your choices, right? And then the CEO has to show his or her true colors. Mm. Either I give that person an additional pass and fully knowing that an organization is constantly calibrating their conduct based on the signals of the CEO, what he or she does or what he or she fails to do. Mm. So by giving somebody a pass or by giving a, a business a pass in a certain way, the CEO is suggesting it's okay. For what number of reasons, it's okay. So, mm -hmm. so again, coming back to, it's just a constant recalibration. And the CEO may look at the same issue twice and say the second time, you know, on the first time I was willing to give the benefit of the doubt to this, second time now. Mm -hmm. I understand what I need to do. And perhaps as a final point, Jose, what, what about those leaders who are not in this kind of position, have not had that experience possibly yet within the organization? Where should they start in kind of tidying up the house and making sure that they don't get to that point? Look, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is looking at what I consider relatively easy, which is knowing what the problems are in your organization. And I'm not talking about the business problems, like allegations of misconduct. And any business that thinks that uh, I only get five whistleblower calls a year, so therefore I'm a good business, is a business in delusion. Mm. Because there are always issues, complaints. My manager, I saw this, I saw that. So mm -hmm. the question is, as a leader, how do you want to deal with these issues? So understanding and creating an environment where these things rise to the top so you have transparency, that's one aspect, proactive, that you can do. The second one is just in terms of the role of corporations in society. There's been a dramatic shift 
And uh, maybe because there's low levels of trust in democratic institutions, low levels of trust in corporations, low levels of trust in the accounting profession, for example. I mean, we're missing trust, yet we're all being summoned to collectively address these once-in-a-generation set of challenges like climate change, inequality, and corruption. How are we going to do that with this vacuum of trust? Mm -hmm. So I think it's to for CEOs just to take that next step to connect an organization to its purpose, to connect the organization to sustainable development goals and broaden the lines of responsibility. It's not just saying my lines of responsibilities are where my legal walls begin and end, but also looking at my supply chain, my distribution, and being accountable and not changing the world in one with one stroke, but really just helping people become more human, more understanding. We only have one planet. We don't have 10 that we can just migrate to, but just become more human about how we go about our process and still accountable for numbers and profits. And But I think just creating that broad scope. Yes, we're focused on this today, but no, we're accountable for a broad set of measures and, and getting your shareholders and your board members, your leadership and your company aligned to that. That's tough work. Mm-hmm. But if you can do it, you know, it is the, you know, what's going to keep the business sustainable because you're not just working on the customers today, but you're really focusing on, you know, 10, 20, 50 years down the line. Yeah. So am I hearing you say there's this broadening of accountability to include more stakeholders than just the shareholders of the organization and to serve more than just the bottom line, for example, and to really move towards purpose. So, I mean, we're hearing more and more mm-hmm. about the need for businesses to be purpose-driven. And depending on the type of business that is either pursued authentically and really incorporated in a systemic way into mm-hmm. the operations of the business, or it's done almost as a PR exercise in a tick box and, you know, let's say we're about this, this and that, but mm-hmm. carry on with business as usual. Am I hearing you say that the latter is not really a long-term option, that this is not about flowery ideologies and hugging trees and, you know, shaking hands and being all about peace, love, and unity. This is just basic good business. If you really want to have sustainable, strong business in the long term, becoming committed to these kind of goals and finding a purpose that goes beyond just profit is fundamentally important and necessary. Yeah, critical. And you and I think you've nailed it right. There, there's not an option. However, CEO tenures seem to get shorter and shorter. Our attention span seems to go quarter by quarter in terms of stock market price. And in terms of, it's it's about probabilities, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it's about really caring about an organization or caring just about your job and what you do. So it's really thinking of the whole and thinking about leaving this place, like we're just stewards here. You know, we've been handed this task and we're supposed to hand it over a little bit of better shape than what we received it. Not, am I going to get $100 million in between the four years of my tenure? Mm-hmm. So I think it's just thinking in those terms, thinking that for the next 100 years and understanding the business is complex and we can't make all those changes today. Nobody's going to disagree with you on UN Sustainable Development Goals. Nobody's going to disagree with you with having a sense of purpose. But it is how committed are we to doing it? Mm-hmm. And whether you're going to be rewarded or not, chances are at the beginning, you won't. You'll see a honeymoon spike. And then at the end, people say, well, where's my profits? But you have to bring a series of individuals along with you, starting with your shareholders, starting with your board members and your leadership team and the whole organization and even your third parties, because that's where the cloud comes in. If you have 200,000 suppliers around the world and you insist that they, for example, cut their carbon footprint in half, 
right? Or you insist on certain ethical standards with them. Well, that's 200,000 individuals, companies, some are big, some are small, that you're important to them, so they're going to follow your lead. And they themselves have suppliers. Mm -hmm. And same with your customers. So there's a big, the intellectual rationale is really easy here, but it's just a matter of executing it in a large organization and being able to stay with it. And know that even though your returns from quarter to quarter may not be there over this medium and long term, it's just simply the right thing to do. Jose, thank you very much. Thank you. Profound words. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired. Brought to you by Headspring.